know, wires the money, but is that real, you know, title difference? Um, so in, in those conversations with the, the CEO, they, they know where the money is. They, they know what needs, you know, they're, they're, they're apprised of the situation before it gets to there. And, and usually it's like, how do we, how do we figure this out? And then if we can't figure it out, we're going to have to do something drastic, right? Thank you so much for tuning into Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. I'm your host, as always, Christian D. Evans. And guys, we are going to be talking about all the fun stuff today. So we're going to be diving into fun, a lot of different things, fintech, biotech, life sciences, ag tech, food tech. What the heck is this going on? There's a lot of verticals we're going to be talking about, how to navigate it, what that looks like. And that's the reason why I have this next guest on. So you will want to hold tight and listen to this episode. Probably share this with a lot of your friends and family. Uh, he has just been an incredible amount of background. Just to share with you a little bit, investment advisor, portfolio management options strategist, fractional startup CFO. Uh, at the beginning, he works portfolio manager at Shibu Capital, portfolio manager at Parplex Capital, Bank of America. He worked with them, Montgomery Securities, any securities license in Series 76365. So very, very reputable individual. He works very closely with a lot of startups and a lot of uh, high net worth, ultra high net worth individuals deploying a lot of capital in the alternative investing space. Please welcome my next guest, the founder and co-founder of Orient, the one and only managing partner, Austin Milliken. How are you doing today, Austin? I'm doing great, Christian. Thank you for the uh, the nice intro there. Dude, I'm so excited and pumped up about having you on because, you know, what's so interesting is we've had a lot of individuals talking about, you know, secondaries or, you know, pre-IPO companies. And that's exciting stuff, but it's so fun talking about, you know, these other fintech and biotech and life sciences, ag tech and food tech, specifically those kind of verticals. I don't gravitate toward too much about this. But before we dive into all that fun things and underwriting how you think about it, I want to ask you, okay, you started as a volatility trader okay tell us how do you came from volatility trader to now what you're doing my man well i actually didn't start as a volatility trader i i started as a, a ticket runner on a trading desk so uh getting lunches and getting coffees and all that stuff and you know over the years was able to work up to a volatility trader and uh and portfolio manager but um you know that uh that was great. And I, I love that. And I, I learned a lot as a volatility trader and, um, you know, modeling and, and, and pricing assets and uh, being able to, you know, trade them. But, you know, living in San Francisco, uh, it was a natural progression to, to move to the startup world and um, really start to, you know, transition away from something that's really volatility trading is more uh East Coast or Chicago centric, so it, it made sense for me to to move over to startups here in San Francisco because it's huge ecosystem. So was that? I was going to ask you what was the what was the adaptation? What was the bridge? I mean, because they are totally two different verticals, and so that's what kind of it was intriguing to me. So you moved, and the ecosystem where you were at, it just kind of facilitated a lot of startup kind of environment, and that's the reason and how you got active in in the startup world. Is that correct? Then yeah, so that was around like two thousand fifteen, sixteen, and you know everyone had a startup. Everyone was in the startup world, and everyone was. You know, uh, that was the place to be and just a lot of cool things happening in San Francisco. And, um, you know, everyone was 
somehow dialed into uh, some part of that ecosystem. So it just was an easy transition. And, um, you know, the, the skill set for me was, you know, become a CFO at, at a startup. And, you know, when, you, when you're working on a startup, titles really don't mean that much. Uh, you're a co-founder. It's just like who can do what and who can get it done. And, um, you know, learning, you know, it was a steep learning curve for me, like moving from uh, volatility trading to uh, working as a co-founder. But, um, you know, I think every every startup founder is it's a steep learning curve and you don't know what you, you don't know. So, um, so let's dive into the startup world first, because I want to dive into the finances. Uh, you CFO, you 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 worked in that area for quite a different different slew of startups. And I want to talk a little bit about that and how you structure that, because that's drastically different in regards to the books of a startup versus uh, 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 the books of a of a, a mature company. Right. Just totally different in the way you structure it. So I want to talk about that here shortly. But I want to dive into, you know, in this area. Um, when you were either, you know, working with a CFO, at, you know, as a CFO for these startups, uh, you know, consulting for them or helping them in, in that assistance or just helping really facilitate, you know, maybe capital, right, raising. How did you, because there, there's just tons of startups, there's tons of different, you know, people looking for funding. How did you navigate those waters, right, where you were like, okay, hey, I'm going to bet on this person, right? It's, it's betting on the jockey more so than the actual product because that's going to obviously evolve. So how, how did you navigate those waters during some crazy, crazy years, man? Yeah, I, I mean, I the idea is, the idea behind the startup is always, and everyone has tons of ideas, right? So, um, you know, you take a shower, you come up with a great idea for something, you might forget about it, and but or you might decide to work on it. But in most cases, it's really the the people behind it. And uh, for founders, you get a you can get a pretty good sense for if they're going to be able to make it, I guess, you know, um, like, what are they willing to do to, to get to the next level? Are they, are they too timid? Or are they too reserved? Or are they over ambitious? And so you, you can you get a good sense for the capabilities of people. And like, are they, are they willing to, you know, go and get a second job to make payroll uh, next month? Or are they willing to, um, you know, or are they over overextended where they've kind of gone all in on something and, and, you know, they'll, um, you know, they're just going to self implode. <laughs> so, um, you know, you, you get a sense for that. And uh, there is a, there is a balance and there is a lot of luck involved for people. Um, and then also people that uh, founders that have done it before. So, um, they have a little bit more experience and, uh, you know, sometimes that's a great thing and sometimes that can be somewhat of a hindrance, but, um, for the most part, uh, experience and, uh, really the character of, of the, the founders. So let's dive into this because I've heard this numerous times when I'm talking to a lot of VCs, they, they underwrite the, the founder and the team and so forth. And 
I, I want to kind of dive in the way you think about this, because just like you mentioned, you're looking for certain characteristics, right, about this person. Hey, are they willing to go all in? I know one individual, hey, how much money of your own money did you deploy into this business? And, you know, did you deploy, you know, a quarter of a million, half a million, whatever? Then that shows, okay, you got skin in the game. So naturally, that, that that's a good, good sign. And then like you mentioned as well, hey, do you have previous experience in, you know, running a company or an exit or whatever it is? However, though, there is a caveat because obviously some of the wells, you know, Jeff Bezos, he never ran a company before and he obviously scaled his, you know, Amazon and so forth. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg is another good example, right? So it's one of those things where it is a caveat a little bit where you have to, you know, do they hit all the check boxes? Are they a first time founder? Sure. But they also have all these other characteristic traits. And let's dive into those other characteristic traits, you know, in regards to, uh, is it intuition for you, Austin, or have you just been able to talk with so many different founders that you've already got that feel, like you already have that, like that, that, that knack for, okay, I know this guy, he's got it and he's got the winning mentality or that woman has got a winning mentality. Um, yeah, I, I mean, some of it's intuition, I guess, um, you, you get a feel for a person pretty quickly. Um, you know, I, for me, a lot of letters behind your name don't you know, especially for a founder, it doesn't mean a lot um, because the skills that you need to to do to survive are not really taught in school. It's not, you can't, it's like a lot of street smarts. And um, so I've dealt with people, you know, founders that are, they don't, they're, they're worried about, really worried about their image when they should be worried about, um, you know, what needs to be done. Uh, what needs to be taken care of and and willing to go that extra extra step to get things done a, a lot of people will tell you they'll do they want to do whatever needs to be done but when you know rubber hits the road they're not really they don't until, until you've been in some tough spots it's it's difficult to um to know what you're gonna what you're gonna do so um you know, I don't know if you heard the old Tyson quote, you know, everyone's got a plan until they get in the face, right? Um, so I think that's really true. It, especially, you know, you, you look at the markets in the past year, right? Um, private markets last year shut down. And right now, a lot of uh, startups are struggling because um, the money that was there before just isn't there. And um, so it's scary. For people right and we don't know when it's going to come back and it, it feels pretty good right now we're in the middle of the summer and we have a nice little public market rally going that uh, you know a lot of a lot of a lot of people hate just because it, 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 it while we are rallying it doesn't feel great but um so you know at the end of the year we might have a lot of you know money might be coming back in the market but you know we don't know so it's uh you know, it's, it's, it's a gut check time for, for founders. It is a different environment. And I'm, and this kind of evolves right into a great question in, in this next kind of segment in regards to the CFO world, because <laughs> I, I do understand that a lot of founders during these last 10 years where, where there was just an up to the right trajectory and you could raise capital in a relatively easy environment. <laughs> and they were relying on that next fundraise or that bridge you know, you know, uh, capital raise, whatever it was. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and what I noticed though, is now that the capital has dried up a little bit, 
I think it'll obviously deploy at some point, but we don't know the timeline on that. So it's just, you gotta, you gotta navigate the, the waters now. So my question is, as a CEO, a CFO, excuse me, working with these startups, like I mentioned, it is a different ecosystem, the way you do projections, the way you obviously modify the financials of it. And, you know, even the underwriting of future kind of, um, you know, uh, C, uh, series A, Series B kind of fundraising. How did you, what, what were certain things that you had to kind of just run with the punches a little bit in regards to, you know, kind of the margin? I would imagine a lot of that was all over the place sometimes as you're kind of figuring out product market fit, acquisition, a lot of things and, and spending money and then also raising capital. What, what were certain things that you had to just kind of roll with? What, what did that look like? Unpack that for us in regards to KPIs and, and the way you just kind of um, ran with the punches, definitely in the startup world. Uh, yeah, well, you know, obviously you have your plan, right? <laughs> the way things are supposed to go and the way you want them to go. And it all makes sense when you put it down on paper, but reality, things don't happen like that. And uh, people are late on payments. Things get stolen. Um, you know, inventory gets stolen. Um, and you know, there's, what are you going to do? You have to pay people. Now your $200,000 worth of inventory is gone. How do you, how do you bridge that gap? And so you have, you know, there's a lot of, there's the checks in the mail kind of thing. And, um, cap, you know, at that, in the startup, you know, it used to be, you were looking, you'd raise money for six months, right? And then you'd, You'd raise money, get your money, work your plan for six months, but start on your next fundraise immediately, sort of getting ready for the next, you know, you have your, uh, your MVP, then you, you know, proof of concept, and you, you know, you're working through all these, these stages. Um, you know, now that timeline, you have to extend that, that to 12 months, because that's just kind of how long it's going to take at least right and maybe even eight, uh, 18 months so um really working that budget on a shoestring and um you know being smart about uh, where you spend your money when you have to spend it who gets paid first um prioritizing payments and uh like for instance there was a you know, SVB, you know, nothing really happened from it. I mean, it, it, it wasn't as bad as everyone thought it would be. Like everyone thought they're, you know, over that weekend, people were really worried about their, you know, am I going to be able to make payroll next week? I got to switch all the, I got to switch all my payments from this bank to another bank. And uh, there was a real um, uh, effort for you know, guys in, in my seat to, prepare their companies for that following Monday when they might not be able to, to get their money out. But that, that fire drill is just a, a really a typical startup, um, startup practice where you're prioritizing things, making sure that the people you need to, to work for you are serviced or, or paid. Um, and then figuring out who can kind of, kind of mellow over, you know, let the account, accounts payable kind of, kind of float. So 
So let me ask you this, because I, when, when I was scaling my business, it was bootstrapped, right? Where, okay, I can only spin and I didn't have any outside investors. The only thing I, I had was a, I had X amount of dollars in and I could only spend X amount of dollars. And of course, we obviously put those in, you know, buckets and all that fun, you know, accounting stuff and whatever. But my point is, is in, this, in the startup world, you're, you're kind of relying on external capital sometimes. And then also internal, like you mentioned there, there's, there's, there's unexpected cost, right? And my question is, CFO, how did you integrate those unexpected costs into the plan? Did you just increase the, 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 the error or the margin and say, hey, you know what? And instead of anticipating, you know, a, a 30% margin, we're going to go ahead and decrease it down to 20%. And there's probably going to be 10% somewhere that there's going to be, like you mentioned, inventory problems or someone's stealing or sure. something's happening or, hey, this, this, you know, that, that, that revenue, we lost that big client X, Y, Z, right? Fill in the blank, sure. right? Sure. Is that what you did to anticipate yeah. that? Oh, okay. Talk yeah, a little bit about that, how you navigated that. You know, like, so that's like, that goes back to like portfolio management and risk management, right? So uh, look at your really, your real chunky um, expenses or your real chunky revenue. Like uh, one time I was working as a CF, uh, fractional CFO for a company and we sold a bunch of, uh, it was PPE. So um, all the, uh, you know, gloves and, and masks and stuff to, um, you know, a state agency, right? And so we had a PO from that state agency was supposed to float us for a couple months and, you know, really, um, uh, you know, we were, we really needed it badly. It turns out, that they, you know, it, it was due in 30 days and they didn't pay us for like 120 days or something. So, yeah. And so looking at things like that on your, in your pro forma and, and how it affects your, your cash balance, that's pretty much how I, you know, what does it say? What does it do to your bank account at the end of the day? Are, you know, are you going to be negative? And if you are, then you better be very, very um, uh, thoughtful of uh, of that that input, or or making that commitment, or or really planning around it, because you know it might be eighty percent money in the bank, but. 20% of the time, you're not going to have it. And then you're really going to be scrambling and need to go back to the well, like investors or, you know, sell something or, or, you know, eat beans and rice for the next month or whatever it is. Right. So, um, yeah. Well, I know in, in today's world, right, we've seen a lot of people extend their runway, right? And they're anticipating even, you know, late 2025, uh, yeah, 2025, excuse me, or mid 2025. And uh, which makes sense. I definitely understand that. And we're also seeing some of these startups and founders and other companies as well doing layoffs, right? Mass layoffs or sure. you know, taking five or 10%. Uh, I just, you know, heard from a friend of mine, they're doing about 10% layoff uh, from all everybody just kind of, you know, all across the uh, the organization. Um, how did you, what were those conversations like with, between the CFO yourself and the founder and the, you know, the, the, the C-suite, the leadership, right? The leadership team and having those tough conversations, having those, those difficult situations say, Hey, you know, we've got money. Yes, but we're spending way too much and there's uncertainty and yet we can grow at all costs, but also we want to grow with some good margin and profitability. 
what what did that look like? How did you navigate that even? And uh, is there is there also misalignment between, you know, building a structured business and misalignment with investors and getting or maybe even VC partners in regarding like grow at all costs kind of concept and kind of cadence that majority of startups kind of face and a lot of founders have to face? Yeah, you know, I, I think those conversations have always been pretty easy uh, for me just because they have been. You know, it's reality and it's looking at numbers and like i said it's not like like in the startup world it's not this real division of like everyone you're like when you say cfo but i'm doing a lot of other things also like i might be helping i, I don't know what it is like even even putting things together right <laughs> Uh, so there isn't, or helping out in a, in a, in a trade show booth or whatever it is. Um, it's not like early stage where there, you know, where there is a real division of where, where title makes a big difference. Right. Um, you know, I, I might be the one that signs the checks or whatever, or, you know, wires the money, but, um, it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, there, there is that real, you know, title difference. Um, so in, in those conversations with the, the CEO, they, they know where the money is. They, they know what needs, you know, they're, they're, they're apprised of the situation before it gets to there. And, and usually it's like, how do we, how do we figure this out? And then if we can't figure it out, we're going to have to do something drastic, like stop stop something or, or, or cut something or cut someone or, um, you know, ask, ask someone to work, you know, would you take equity or, or whatever the, whatever the solution might be, um, you know, look at, 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 uh, alternative, in, you know, funding, what, whatever it might be. So, uh, generally I, I like, it's never been like, oh boy, we have to, we have to stop. <laughs> like, we, we know where we are. We know what's going on and uh, it's going to be difficult. And hopefully, you know, we're not going into 2025 through this uh, slowdown. So. Did you, um, you know, obviously there's a book out there, Profits First. Uh, it was in, been able to, you know, revolutionize a lot of small businesses in regards to just buckets and how they're deploying capital and making sure that they have just just the basics, right? I mean, we mm -hmm. all have basics and finances in, in, in our own home and then obviously, you know, deploying it in our own business as well, structured kind of approach. Um, did you implement this, the, these, these kind of basic kind of stuff, um, you know, Profits First kind of focus? right off day one when you're working with them or was it kind of an evolution because let's be honest a lot of investors they don't want you know just money sitting there in the bank for sure. you know salary they, they want to hey are we going to put it toward marketing and acquire mm -hmm. more clients and you know all, all this stuff right yeah. so there's this like yeah. misalignment so how um well what what in regards to the structure on the back end what, what did that look like so it's not so it's the product right whatever the whatever you're selling so a uh, you know, SaaS company is going to be different than a, a, uh, CPG or something. Right. And then it depends on what, who's your investor base and who you're selling it to. Right. So, uh, a venture fund might have like a five or seven year time horizon on their fund. 
um, a family office could have a hundred year time horizon or a 20 year time horizon or, a, you know, some high net worth uh, individual could, um, you know, is going to have a different set of um, investment parameters or even like a foundation that's that's just interested in in pushing a, an idea or um, finding a cure for some sort of disease. So they have they all have different goals so i think working towards your audience and knowing your audience and like i don't know how many times i've heard people say they want an ipo right and ipo market's dead and like it's sounded good in 2000 2000 when everyone you know i i was in the middle of that and uh everyone was ipoing and it was it was a great idea. Now, that's not not what people necessarily want to hear. They want to hear, uh, you know, you're going to be acquired or, um, you know, more realistic expectations for when they get their money back. Um, so, you know, back to your question, like, uh, depends what the product is. Does it have the scalability where it can take off that money is, you know, throwing money at it and scaling it all costs makes sense or is it something that you know you have to do um you know prop with profits in mind first so um you know it's it's not a, it's not a direct answer for every company i don't think so it's very contextual which i figured it would be you know it's just you know what, what that looks like and as well as the investors and so forth and the founder as well um, I want to talk a little bit about you know startup advising. I know you you not just uh, not just uh, you know the CFO work, but you also advise holistically, and then also work very closely with a lot of you know high net worth, ultra high net worth individuals, and helping them find the deal flow, right? In regards to what I just mentioned, fintech, biotech, life sciences, ag tech, food tech, and all that fun stuff, which we're going to be diving into very shortly. But I was curious in startup advising with the with the companies you've you know worked with very closely. What have you noticed is like their weak spot? And in, in most startups or maybe founders, because, you know, some founders come in very technically, um, you know, um, advanced where they know the back end stuff. They know the product. They're all about this. Some are more marketing sales, all that fun things, right? They're charismatic and all whatever, like the characteristics, personality, totally drastically different, but they can win and they can accomplish things. And you're advising them on a lot of different things within their whole organization, whole business, uh, talent acquisition, all that fun stuff. So out of all the individuals, if you could, I know it's probably contextual depending upon obviously the company, what they're looking for, but like holistically, are you noticing a trend in regards to what most of them are? Is there kind of their weak spot? Yeah. You know, as a trend, so for a, a founder that hasn't started a company or run a company, and we get a lot of like, like for instance, in, in life sciences and biotech, a lot of really, really smart research um uh based founders right so some guy that spent so many years uh re re researching something they think they found something but they don't know how to go to market they don't know how they don't know what's the you know what's the the right numbers to be asking you can you can really tell where they what they don't know pretty quickly um, like for instance, just how you form your company and, you know, what, how much money you need, you know, what's, what's the return profile going to look like? And like, when it, when is an investor going to get it back kind of thing? 
And those are those are some of the basic questions that any investor wants to know. And and um, they're just way best ways to like form your company, make it easy um, for investors to understand. Um, Sorry, I think we, we cut out there for a second. So, uh, you know, depending on on the, the background of the investor, like th that is um, just some of the ba basic blocking and tackling that, um, you know, investors are going to know about. And then that makes investing in a company easy. Like I've seen I've seen a lot of a lot of founders. They have great ideas. They have a great opportunity. And then they set up their entity wrong. Right. And it's hard for an investor to wrap their head around and, and value. So it's just, it's just a quick pass automatically just because the, the vehicle was set up in the, improperly. And, um, you know, maybe they got, they had an idea, they got some bad advice and it just makes it sort of a no go from the beginning, unfortunately. Yeah. Austin, I, I think that's so interesting that you're mentioning that because I was literally just talking to someone, I think two weeks or three weeks ago and his concept, he sent me his deal flow. And it is so interesting how a lot of investors and LPs, family offices, they've got a high bar, right? They're very institutional. Maybe they're very, just really focused on, Hey, if they don't have, uh, you know, X, Y, Z set up in their company or whatever, maybe it's a hard no and very quick no. And sometimes you only have one time to pitch these individuals. And in a, in a macro economy where you, you know, it's, it's already hard to raise capital. It's like, you, you got to really dial these things in. And then also on the side point in regards to, you know, some of these founders are so technical or research focused where they actually have a cool product and it's really awesome, but they need to lean on someone that maybe knows how to actually get it up and running in deployment. And, you know, we've all have talked to, you know, about, you know, obviously Warren Buffett has Charlie Munger and, and Bill Gates has, you know, uh, Paul Allen, all these individuals, like all these individuals had their kind of partner that kind of compensated that yin and yang approach. So when you identify with a startup, when you're advising them and you're automatically, because you've done this so, so much and you, you kind of just know the trends and you're able to identify the problem very quickly, what does that look like in regards to, you know, fixing it? Um, are they pretty leaning on that or are they pretty like, okay, Hey, you know, we need, well, what does that look like? Yeah, I see you're shaking yeah, your head. Yeah, go, yeah, go yeah. Austin. <laughs> it's like, you know, the old saying, you can lead a horse to water. Yeah. Yeah. So it, a lot of times it, it, if they want to drink, they'll drink and they'll, they'll figure it out. And, you know, I don't have all the answers, but I have a good network that will help you get the answers. And, um, you know, we do a lot in biotech and life sciences, but I've never walked anyone through a, FDA approval, right? You know, I've worked with a lot of companies that are getting through it and they need money for it, but I don't know the steps. So, uh, but I know people that do, right? And um, if you want to, you know, I can help you out. And, you know, it, it's always going to be a, a balance between or among a, a bunch of things, right? Like the, what, is, what does the, the founder know? What do they think they know? Um, you know, are they willing to accept help? A lot of people can't accept help. <laughs> you know, they want to do everything. You know, I, I learned that the hard way in my life, like wanting to do everything myself and, 
you know, it's always easier to ask the expert, I think. But then, all, you know, there are also budgetary constraints, like um, all this stuff costs money and everyone has their hand out and everybody wants to, you know, a pitch deck, they want to charge you 20 grand for or a pro forma, and that's another whatever. And it, it adds up pretty quickly. And for a founder, there are a lot of people that are, um, you know, they have their hands out. Everyone wants, you know, it, they want to make a make a living off of it. Everyone has to make a living, right? And so being part of that that founder thing is being shrewd and being, um, you know, tight with your money in the beginning, and so you're you're not taken advantage of. But you know, getting what you can, uh, getting the most value of what what you can, and um, and then being able to you know classic classic founder move is a pivot right like you didn't do everything right in the beginning can you pivot real quickly and and learn from your mistakes or or you know uh gain from your mistakes actually and um and maybe they're not mistakes then maybe they're just part of the evolution um but uh yeah so and that goes back to your earlier question about um sizing guys up when they come in and ask ask to work together like how where where are they mentally in this um you know so um yeah so and what i find so interesting about you is because you've been in this ecosystem this environment for many years and you've had these conversations and dialogue you have enough internal data to pull from to say an experience as well to say, okay, hey, very quickly you're able to isolate and kind of pull, you know, the, the winners and the losers. Now, of course, you'll probably get that wrong, but that error has gone down, that that, uh, that margin has gone down tremendously, which is really interesting. Now, I want to talk a little bit about you, you guys because of this atmosphere. Let's let's be straightforward, right? You are in where everybody's at, right? And all the the deep tech, the fun, exciting projects, all that all that craziness, right? What led you into the fintech, biotech, life sciences, ag tech, and food tech, specific verticals within the whole tech uh, vertical? Yeah. Uh, so a lot of it has to do with where I'm positioned, right? Like I, I live about an hour north of San Francisco now. I grew up in the city and uh, spent a lot of time in the Bay Area. So those, those, those you know, verticals are, are hot in the Bay area. And my, my, a lot of my, most of my interest in, in the startup uh, ecosystem is just because I like to see what people are doing and I'm my just my curiosity. Um, food tech is big in Berkeley, you know, so we see people doing crazy stuff like, you know, like the leather out of mushrooms or whatever, you know, what, whatever, like you don't, you, some of the stuff you can't believe in it is not believable and then they do it and you're, <laughs> you're wondering how they did it. And, uh, you know, turning, you know, cultivating food and it's just, it's just really cool stuff. And, um, and you, you bump into people at, you know, at the bar or at a restaurant or you just meet people that are working in it and then conversation starts. So it's cool. And, um, FinTech, uh, my, my business partner uh, had an early exit at uh, uh, crypto-based fintech years ago, so that's always been and and it speaks to you know my portfolio management background and 
so that's easy for me to understand and um, uh, see where the value is there. Uh, ag tech, I love, and it has been like sort of a a pet project of mine, just because ag is ag is huge. And living in San Francisco, like we're an hour and a half from pretty much the United States breadbasket. We were, you know, all, where all our vegetables are in, and almonds and everything grows. And but to tell you the truth, when I lived in San Francisco, I I could not. I couldn't tell you how to get there, right? <laughs> it was just over a bridge and then down the freeway over a hill and then there it is. But, you know, when you're a city kid, like that doesn't, you know, so I, ag tech I love just because it, it doesn't really get the respect that it should. And so then that means there's value there. And uh, which makes sense because it's a defensible moat and, you know, obviously the higher the bar of the interest or, or lack the, of the information there is, the, the, the better the opportunity. When you're well, looking at ag tech. Well, with, with, with yeah, with tech and, and ag tech, there's just so much low-lying edge, right? Like places where technology – and you, you see this in like construction tech and, uh, you know, property tech, like – just where there are still a lot of relationships and a lot of um, uh, just a lot of places where efficiencies can be found. And they're, they, the uptake in technology, while, you know, they have really, really sophisticated tractors that run themselves and they're on a grid and they do everything or, or they have, you know, other management systems that are, but there's just like in the uh, like, you know, genetics or uh, uh, management of, of, of farms or just a lot, a lot of cool, cool possibilities. And, um, you know, like um, pollination, right? There's, there's uh, a company out there that has does smart pollination and, and just creates easy, not, I wouldn't say easy, but just like obvious places where efficiencies can be found that haven't been found because the, uh, technology hasn't been applied. Yeah, that's what I think is so fun is the, when there is this this adaptation or this integration between both of those verticals, tech <laughs> and ag is, is a really great example. And it hasn't been revolutionized for a long time. You know, it's, I mean, when we look at the instruments and the machines that we're still using, it's just like, oh, wow, we're still using this. And and I mean, it's just it's crazy, but it's really exciting as well. Now, I'm not involved in that involved much into this. When uh, you know, I don't deploy a lot of capital toward these these sectors. That's why it was kind of fun to have you on as well, talking about this. Um, when you're looking at this, or investors, right? Because you 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 work closely with startups and, and founders, as well as you know a lot of LPs, right? When investors are asking these questions and looking at these kind of um, you know underwriting these deals, what are they looking for? I would imagine because this sector is slightly different, I would imagine the timeline in regards to um, you know exit is a little longer. They anticipate a little longer, right? Uh, and then also maybe sometimes you have to work a little bit with these kind of sectors, specifically biotech I'm thinking of. You have to work with government agencies a little bit to make sure that there's a proper, uh, you know, kind of next phase, next whatever that looks like in, in regards to the company. So 
um, when you're having these conversations and then pitching these investors to make sure that there's a good synergistic relationship between founder and you know LP, what what are you noticing? How what, what does that look like in, in regards to how they're underwriting these deals specifically? What questions? What are they looking for, et cetera? Yeah. Um, well, biotech's you know, and with with the the you know the FDA, that's that's a binary event usually or you know, there's always an event date there, right? So um, that that one is, you know, it's difficult because for 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 instance, we have we have one right now that the FDA date has come and passed, and they're they're still reviewing it. So it's very it's it's kind of nerve wracking, right? So we're waiting for waiting for data, waiting for, you know, everything, all the questions from the FDA have come back and they've been answered and uh, the questions have been good. So we'd expect, you know, a good outcome, but you don't know until, until it happens. And then getting an investor to focus on it is, is difficult. And you can set up the, the, you know, the risk reward and the expectation of the, of your, um, investment and it makes a lot of sense but you know a lot of time getting these guys um, you know getting their attention and getting them to focus on a deal is difficult because there's so much competition for their attention and for um you know showing them deals that there's a lot of brain drain that that occurs and if a fund, like if it's a small fund, like you have a small raise, so you know real big funds can't can't participate. So you have to go to smaller guys that are interested. But there's a lot of a lot of work into it, right? Like understanding the science and understanding, um, you know, your like I said, your expectation and and handicapping that. So, um, you know that on that side that is on the biotech side that's a, that's a little bit nuanced because of those those milestones that you have to reach and 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 the data um on the the ag tech side you know they they really aren't that much different than just a regular vc type uh, raise there there is um you know it is a little slower because you have seasons right <laughs> you know you have to Mother Nature doesn't speed up for anyone. So, um, but uh, you know, they're they're two halves of the world also. So it doubles your your um, your growing time. But uh, you know, they still have the same expectations. Like depending on what, on what their fund is, if it's you know five or seven year time horizon and and the assets in it and kind of their expectation for their IRR. Um, those those are the kind of questions they ask. Like, what do I get? And when do I get it back? And uh, you know what? What's your what's your plan here? What are your milestones? I would imagine a lot of individuals that invest into these sectors either came from it or very you know very educationally based in these sectors. They know what's yep. going on. They kind of know the top front of things. Um, because someone literally sent me uh, you know three or four days ago a slide deck about lithium. Uh, lithium batteries and forklifts and of course i reviewed it but i have like i have no idea they just take you know technical 
jar- jargon. And I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. I had to get on a conversation with them. And it's like, what's the application of this? You know, I'm not going to read this, you know, seven page slide deck. So right. when you're looking at, you know, and that's one of the reasons why I want to bring you on here to bring awareness to these sectors and the importance of it. Do you find majority of the capital deployed in these sectors are VCs or or are they, you know, a lot of individual LPs that have come from this sector that are very familiar with it? Uh, same thing with AI, right? Um, you know, we, we see a lot of people deploying, a lot of family offices deploying or, you know, kind of collaborating with a lot of VCs that maybe, you know, have a fund that focuses on this this region to be able to at least get exposure to it. They may not know it, but they, they kind of rely on experts and expertise in, in regards to fund managers when they're deploying capital. What, what does that look like um, when, when you're when you're having that relationship between both? Sure. Yeah. We see that all the time. Like, uh, you know, in these deals, if you have having a lead is a huge benefit, especially a strong lead that has a good name in, in a sector or a space or, um, you know, cause they're going to do 95% of the legwork for you. <laughs> like they, they get in, they're going to look around in the, in the, you know, your VDR, your, your data room and um, make sure that things are there, make things make sure. And, you know, obviously the leads can make mistakes also. Like we see with so much of crypto land right now, like where people did their due diligence uh, supposedly even not in crypto, like just some of the scams that have, have shown up, but you, I mean, that's, it's going to happen, uh, unfortunately. Uh, but having a strong lead and someone that's known in the space and they have good analysts, and they have the resources to throw at it. Um, you know, if, if you get that, you'll get a lot of uh, follow on money from guys that are just, uh, you know, managers that have respect for other analysts and, and, and VC money. Um, so like, you may have a, a $25 million raise, a $10 million lead, and then other guys will throw in a million bucks behind it and, and fill you out. Um, so uh, it, it is helpful. That makes sense. Yeah. I wanted to slightly pivot a little bit. I know you're obviously in the San Fran and you get a ton of deal flow and you're very well connected in that area. And of course, you know, throughout the United States as well. But uh, I had someone on uh, my podcast just a few days ago, actually. And, you know, we're talking about emerging markets, uh, UAE, and we got Asia. And I did want to just kind of pivot slightly and talk about this. Um, I know, like I mentioned, you're, you're right there active, but I would imagine some of the dialogue, some of the, con- you know, Communication has kind of talked a little bit about this. Uh, you're starting to see some of these other nations and other kind of wealthy nations really, you know, keeping a lot of their deal flow in-house, right? In their nation, they want to obviously build it, maybe take some of the West uh, companies and have a presence in those areas. Um, what does that look like? How are you guys navigating that? Maybe even saying, hey, how can we collaborate with these other family offices and high net worth individuals in these other areas? Or how can we get exposure uh, to you know, these emerging markets that we are seeing kind of you know, trending up to the right? Yeah, you know, I, honestly, I don't do much in there. We, we, do, we do cross paths a little bit, but um, you know, it's always hard to uh, it's just another, it, it, it's something that's really not, not, I, I couldn't speak to it as my strength. Um, you know, we do see a lot of flow from Israel, 
And that's only because one of our, um, you know, our broker dealer partners is there and, there, and there's a lot of ag tech coming out of Israel. So, um, uh, that's a, a, a big, you know, I like looking there for, for, um, for flow and it's, it's always, it's always, it's typically pretty, pretty, pretty decent. And so it's something that I, I'd look at, uh, UAE, I, I really don't, it's kind of a mystery to me, <laughs> Honest, uh, not a mystery, but just not a, not a, uh, a, a focus for me, um, or our company. Um, but there are a lot of interesting things there. I, I do, it's a bandwidth thing, honestly. Um, so yeah, well, I, I, it's specifically I, I can't on... give you a better answer than that. No, that's perfect because even uh, specifically with Israel, what I found so interesting is, I mean, let's be honest, we, I think U.S., we have just a lot more LPs in regards to, you know, wealthier individuals that can deploy this kind of, you know, in this area. I'm not saying obviously, you know, you know, but I just I had, I had someone, a VC that was talking, I came from Italy and they said they just don't have the pool of money like the U.S. does. And so they kind of have collaborations or connections or whatever. My question is, and so kind of talking about Israel, since since obviously you have some deal flow from there, is how, what's that relationship look like? How do you guys collaborate? Is it, hey, they, they've got a founding, they got a position there, they're exploding in that area, in that region maybe, and they want to have a presence in the U.S. internationally to be able to obviously um, you know capitalize on that? Mm-hmm. Um, and if so, how do you then navigate the conversation between these LPs? And we're just talking about Israel because obviously, like you mentioned, you have a presence and you're very familiar with that, that, uh, well, area. I mean, and it's actually the tech hub over there. It's very interesting it, to see that. Yeah. You know, they, they made a real effort, or, you know, I'm assuming it's the government there has made a real effort towards. So think about it. Like Israel is like a postage stamp, right? <laughs> and. <laughs> But they have to make do with with what they have, and so yeah. they they have a real strong, like, the number of Israeli ag tech companies is crazy, right? And they desalination that the pollination company that I mentioned, um, you know, the list can go on and on, and so they're doing a lot with a little, which is what you need to do if mm-hmm. you're trying to feed the whole world, right? <laughs> and um, so. Yeah, the technology starts there, but you know, there's no real market there for it. I mean, there is a market, but no, no real market. So yeah, they're trying to expand in the United States, and and they're set up as Delaware C corps, right? And they want to raise money in the U.S. to expand and uh, scale in the U.S. generally, um, and then around the world. So. Uh, you know, everyone needs pollination. So it's like they needed it. They, they, they validated it there. And then now they move over, over here and um, move to the rest of the world kind of thing. So I have not deployed any capital into a company that has a, an, a, an exposure or, you know, started in another country. Most of them are here in the U S or real estate, et cetera. My question then is, do they make a U.S. laws and regulations? And because we got a you know relatively good relationship with Israel, do they make it easy for you know to to get a presence here? Right? They they have the technology there to bring it over here and then be able to you know uh, hire. I would imagine so, but I, I obviously again you know ignorance is bliss. I, I I'm not sure. So 
And if it is difficult, you know, even deploying capital and so forth, uh, what does that look like? Um, how do you guys, you know, really help them expand and get a really deep presence here, even with competition, et cetera? So, yeah. So let me think. That's a, a bunch of things in there. So I have seen issues with U.S. companies selling technology abroad, right? And especially companies that are, um, you know, selling to defense, right? Um, so technology is there. Um, so that's one thing. Selling here, no, I haven't really, I mean, I haven't seen any real, uh, any issues there. And, um, you know, like I said, they're Delaware C Corp. So they're, they're domiciled here essentially, but the, the technology, the founders are, are from, from, from abroad. So, um, yeah, I, I couldn't, you know, there, I'm sure there are some issues, you know, that, that are, you, you can overcome and, um, work around or, or try to figure out. So, but we see that a lot with like, you know, companies from Latin America, um, setting up yeah. their, their C corps in, in Delaware and, uh, they have business down there. So, Austin, so, so this, Austin, this makes sense in regards to kind of what you're saying. And, and I really appreciate unpacking this. I'm curious because it, you know, we're talking specifically about ag tech. And obviously somewhere in that, in that world, in that environment, it, it touches, you know, food of some sort, right? And it's, you know, obviously affects what we've got going on as well. And here in the U.S., because of that, um, I would imagine there are certain compliance issues that the company, when they get, you know, I would imagine the structure of building the LLC is very simple, very easy, you know, hiring, deploying capital. I mean, we, we make it pretty simple, but I would imagine the product itself to make sure that it integrates into the U.S. for acquisition of new clients, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. right? I would imagine you would have to get compliant with that, depending upon obviously what the product is, right? But, you know, like same thing with biotech, right? Uh, you, you can't just bring something over here. It has to go through all the compliance, not only obviously in, in Israel, but obviously here and any mm -hmm. other location or any other, you know, uh, nation that, it, you know, you want to, you know, uh, deploy that, that, that product. What does that look like? Is that yeah. because it's ag tech? Is, that, is that a different thing? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean that's a lot of research, and uh, you know, you're going to have federal, state, local compliance, like uh, labor laws, all that you know, all that kind of stuff. Like depending on what you're doing, uh, what market you know, there's regulatory uh, compliance everywhere so yeah it's not easy um uh and it just you just have to think about it and, and find the right advisors and um know who to ask right and um a lot of times sometimes you get if you don't ask the right question if you don't if you don't ask and you don't get you know it, it can it can if you don't get good answers, it can really hurt you in the end. And, um, you know, see a lot, see some, some bad info out there. And that's like, like the FDA thing, you need to, you need to, to go the right, right route. And, um, you know, I mean, look at crypto, right? 
no one knows what a security is. No one, I mean, we kind of know, but uh, there's no real definition or no real judgment out there. Everyone's scared to, to say something. And um, so people are doing things without, without clarity, um, which is a risk, right? So, um, you know, it might, it might work out for you and it might not. So it's a, it's a big bet. Um, you know, other sectors like labor laws and especially in ag, right? There, there are a lot of, um, you know, California is different than Oklahoma. So. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, and I was just curious on that at a micro level because I would imagine there is some sort of compliance or some difficulty, but it seems like it is again, it's very contextual. I understand that with a product, what that looks like, how it's going to affect, et cetera, et cetera. Like, there's so many questions that go into it and you have to just unpack and have to have the right team to make sure that you navigate it accordingly. So I appreciate you talking about this. Austin, this has been a, a magical and a very, very inf uh, informative uh, conversation. I just appreciate you going micro just talking about the CFO side of things and, and business, how to navigate that as a startup and, and the evolution of, of a company going from startup to, you know, a mature company and what that looks like. And then also talking about, you know, just kind of the way you think and underwrite a lot of these companies and the way you look at these and diving into these specific verticals in the tech world and the excitement and the ag tech and bringing awareness to these things and how to underwrite them and how to look at them and what investors looking for, what a founder's looking for. And, you know, all of this amazing conversation uh, and, and then also emerging markets, right? Specifically Israel, we kind of really dove down uh, deep into. So this has been a really awesome conversation. Austin, for those that are listening that are looking to, you know, just connect with you, learn a little bit more about what you got going on, or maybe even reach out and say, hey, I, I may need, uh, you know, CFO or, you know, startup kind of, uh, you know, uh, consulting a little bit and, you know, navigating the, these crazy waters that we, <laughs> we know we're in. Uh, how do they reach out to you, my man? Um, yeah, I mean, we have a website, Warrior Capital, um, or WarriorSF.com. Um, that's a great way, uh, info at, and then, um, I don't know, is there some way I can put my, my, well, no, I think the best way is, is through the, through the website and there's, there's a, uh, the way to connect there. Awesome. Perfect. And guys, to make it very simple, uh, I put all those links in the description below his LinkedIn, uh, his website as well. So you can reach out and connect with him and uh, highly would recommend it. Uh, the biggest thing in these in these world in this world is it's about finding the people that have the Rolodex, right? Finding the new the, the who that knows how to get things done. And that's really what it comes down to. And he's got a huge Rolodex, uh, you know, been in San Fran for a long time. So he knows the who's who. And so totally would recommend reaching out to Austin. Austin, again, I really appreciate you being on here. Guys, that is my friend, the co-founder of ours. Um, guys, that is Austin Oris. Oris. Yep. There we go. So that is the co-founder <laughs> and managing partner of Oris, my friend, Austin Milliken. Guys, that is your with Christian Yeva's podcast. Until next time, be uncommon if you can. Thank you, Christian.